Welcome. You're listening to the Beaver Dam Baptist Church Sunday Sermon Podcast. If you would like more information about Beaver Dam Baptist Church or have questions about today's message, please visit us on the internet at www.bdbc.org. Well, how is your new year starting out? Is 2021 any better than 2020? Or does it seem like it is more of the same? Our current situation in our nation and perhaps in our lives is clearly not ideal. And it is because of that that we long for the ideal instinctively in many different areas of our life. For example, we might dream about what the ideal church would be like. While knowing that it's never really going to happen, we envision what it must be like to have the perfect church. A church where everyone loves the same style of music. A church where everybody attends faithfully and gives generously and serves regularly. A church where there is no gossip gossip or criticism, but relationships are built on mutual love and respect and our commonality in our union with Christ. And you say, man, you really are dreaming this morning. Or what about the ideal concerning politics? Uh, An arena that, as part of our society, is troubling these days. But if the ideal would be that We could be in a country where we could freely share our our ideas, even across the aisle of politics, and be able to listen to and learn from those who disagree with us, and yet maintain respect and love for those with opposing viewpoints. Well, you might call that a fantasy rather than a dream. We can have the same dream when it comes to our career or our vacation or perhaps even our retirement. Certainly there are many young people, especially young girls, who dream about the perfect wedding and marriage. Having watched too many romantic movies, they idolize the perfect meeting, the story that they will tell the rest of their lives when at any dinner party somebody asks them, how did you two meet? And then they will move on from there to a whirlwind courtship, a creative proposal, and ultimately the perfect setting for a beautiful wedding. But of course, that too is just the beginning. The marriage is idealized, including one romantic encounter after another. And of course, it includes the ideal of two or three perfect children that bring nothing but joy and satisfaction to the home. Now, we know, of course, that all of this is the ideal. It is nowhere near reality, which is one reason why such movies are popular, because we know that our lives are not ideal, our relationships are not ideal, and so we like to watch movies that show us the ideal. Well, we could, of course, talk about the ideal relationship with God, an intimate personal relationship with our Creator where we enjoy His presence. It starts, of course, every morning with a cup of coffee and the latest devotional manual, but is, of course, only complete when that picture of you and your coffee mug and your Bible has been posted and your 20 followers have liked it. And then throughout the day, there are signs of his guidance, impressions, maybe even voices. 
that point the direction to where we should go, never leaving us in any doubt whatsoever about the direction in which our lives should take. And then each night we lay our contented head on the pillow, rejoicing in the peace and prosperity of yet another day. Or as the hymn writer said, he walks with me and he talks with me and he tells me I am his own. And the joy we share as we tarry there, none other has ever known. An ideal, apparently unique relationship with God, unlike anyone else in all of creation have ever experienced. You see, that's just an example of the fact that old hymns can have bad theology as well. But my guess is that that sounds nothing like your experience in walking with the Lord yesterday or perhaps even this morning, or perhaps for the vast majority of the days in which you've counted yourself as a follower of Christ. It might be ideal, but the reality is our lives are filled with struggles, temptations, doubts, and yes, even fears. There are times when we feel very close to the Lord, and there are other times when we wonder whether we know the Lord at all. And then, of course, there are days with everything in between. Last week we started a new series from Isaiah called Insights from Isaiah and the initial picture, if you were with us last week, you may remember that the initial picture was not very pretty. But then as we move to chapter two, we see an entirely different picture. Last week Isaiah was dealing with the present reality of Israel's day. This is what they were living in chapter 1 in that particular day. They were rebelling against God and they were dishonoring him even in their worship. And then when we turn the page to Isaiah chapter 2, we find here an ideal relationship. This is what it's going to look like someday when we have that ideal relationship with God. We recognize that it is not yet fully realized, but one day it will be. So let's take a look at what that's going to look like. Isaiah chapter 2, beginning in verse 1. The word that Isaiah, the son of Amos, saw concerning Judah and Jerusalem. It shall come to pass in the latter days that the mountain of the house of the Lord shall be established as the highest of the mountains and shall be lifted up above the hills. And all the nations shall flow to it. And many peoples shall come and say, Come, let us go up to the mountain of the Lord, to the house of the God of Jacob, that he may teach us his ways and that we may walk in his paths. For out of Zion shall go forth the law and the word of the Lord from Jerusalem. He shall judge between the nations and shall decide disputes for many peoples. And they shall beat their swords into plowshares and their spears into pruning hooks. Nations shall not lift up sword against nation, neither shall they learn war anymore. O house of Jacob, come, let us walk in the light of the Lord. I want you to see four things this morning about this ideal relationship, and we're going to walk through each of the four verses. Verse 1 is, of course, an introduction, and so our four points are going to come consecutively from verses 2 through 5. The first is found in verse 2. It is the fact that an ideal relationship exalts God. Again, if you were here last week, you immediately noticed the stark contrast between chapters 1 and 2. 
This oracle in verse 1 begins with a similar wording. This is Isaiah once again. He tells us who his father is once again, and he is speaking to Judah and Jerusalem. And Judah, is, of course, is the southern kingdom. Jerusalem is the capital of the southern kingdom. And although he says he is specifically speaking to this particular people and area, no doubt his message is valuable for all of Israel, even as it remains valuable for us. But that is where the similarities between chapter 1 and these five verses in chapter 2 end. Because last week we saw a people who had rebelled against God, and as a result, their worship of God was external only and was, in fact, repulsive to God. A message that continued throughout the rest of chapter 1. We didn't look at all of chapter 1, just the first half, but that same message continued for the rest of chapter 1. And Isaiah is going to pick up with that message after the five verses we look at here. And a large part of the book is going to be dealing with the Israelites' rebellion in the present. But here in these five verses, we get a picture of the future. A glorious future of an ideal city and an ideal people. And we'll see at the end that this ideal future should motivate us to faithfulness in the present. Now, before we look at these four elements that deal with an ideal relationship, I do need to make you aware of what you might consider to be a potential problem, though I'm going to say it's not, but we need to acknowledge it. These verses in Isaiah are nearly identical to the verses we find in Micah chapter 4, verses 1 through 3. And so you have to ask yourself, why is it that two different prophets have a message or a revelation from the Lord that say almost identically the same thing? Well, there are multiple options, of course. Number one, God could have revealed this message to both of them separately. Number two, God could have revealed it to one of them and the other one borrowed, whether Isaiah borrowed from Micah or vice versa. Or it is certainly the case that it's possible that both of them, or at least one of them, relied on material that was already out there, maybe a popular hymn that was well known among the people and they borrowed from that. None of these options make any impact upon our belief in the revelation of God and the inspiration of the Scriptures. In the New Testament, there is clearly reliance from one gospel upon another. That is, we know that some of the gospel writers in the New Testament used other gospels to help them write their own. Luke actually says that he resourced other material. That is, he went in search of other material and used that in writing his book. So whatever the solution between Isaiah and Micah, there is really no problem with both of these prophets stating this. And in fact, the fact that it's found in both prophets tells us just how popular this particular portion of the material is. In fact, it was probably one of the few uh, well-received items that Isaiah spoke. Well, let's look now at these four aspects of an ideal relationship, beginning with the fact that an ideal relationship exalts God. Verse 2, clearly the phrase there, in the latter days, refers to a time yet in the future. In this case, a time when the Messiah will have his earthly reign. 
No doubt in the first century, they were expecting that to happen when the Messiah initially came. That is why when we read the New Testament letters and the Gospels, we come to understand that they misunderstood the coming of Jesus because they expected when he came the first time that he would establish an earthly reign. And in some sense, this did in fact begin, these latter days did in fact begin at the day of Pentecost, but certainly they have not been completely fulfilled and will not be until Christ comes again. And that is why I said this is the ideal. This is what awaits us in our future. Now, he is clearly talking here about the city of Jerusalem and specifically the Temple Mount, a site where many of us were fortunate to travel to a few years back. Now, it was common in in antiquity for gods, I'm using a little g there, for gods to make their homes on mountains. The belief was that you put your your shrine, you put your place of worship on a mountain because the closer it was to heaven, the better. And so, of course, Jerusalem is on a hill. We've talked about that before. We've talked about the fact that no matter what direction you go from, it is always said in the Scripture that you go up to Jerusalem because it was a higher elevation. Jerusalem is some 2,474 feet above sea level. So it is a mountain, but it is certainly not the highest mountain. Uh, Just for comparison's sake, our Mount LeConte is 6,594 feet above sea level, some three times the city of Jerusalem. The highest peak in America is Denali, or Mount McKinley in Alaska, at 20,300 plus feet. And the highest peak in the world, of course, is Mount Everest, at 29,000 plus feet. So Jerusalem being about 2,500 feet above sea level in no way compares as far as height to something like Denali or Everest. So what does Isaiah mean when he says God's mountain in Jerusalem will be the highest? Are we to expect that in a future time, God is going to supernaturally raise the city of Jerusalem so that it is in fact physically higher than any other place on earth? Well, that is certainly possible and well within the power of God. But it can also be symbolic here, meaning that one day people will realize that God is the true God and thus he is higher than all other so-called God. And as a result, the nations will flow to him. That's river imagery. And you know that a river usually flows downhill. But here we're talking about a river of people flowing uphill to Jerusalem. And that is why I called this point the exaltation of God. Because he will be lifted up above all others and people will come to see him above all other rivals or so-called gods. So that's verse 2. He will be exalted. The ideal relationship is a relationship that exalts God above any other so-called God. Then we move on to verse 3, and we see that an ideal relationship worships God. Now, I'm not talking about the kind of worship that we looked at last week in which God is said to be tired of it, and it has become a burden to him. And we said that was because it was external only. The heart did not match the actions. And so here we are talking about a heartfelt worship. It begins with people desiring to come to God and to bring others with them, or what I'm calling God will be hungered. 
Now that's an odd way of saying it, but I had to put it that way to make it, to make it compare to my next two subpoints. And so it's just my way of saying that people will be hungry for God. An ideal relationship is one in which we hunger for the very presence of God. And by the way, that's one way to tell whether you're excited about worship. Do you not only desire to come, but do you desire to bring others with you? Or we could back up and just say, do you desire God for yourself? I mean, we are going to see throughout this section that one reason we know that this is ideal and not the reality is because we struggle so mightily with these things. Oftentimes, we have to force ourselves to come to worship. Sometimes we have to recommit ourselves to worship. Sometimes, frankly, we come out of tradition rather than a genuine desire for the presence of God. And yet the psalmist said, I was glad when they said unto us, let us go into the house of the Lord. And we have to admit that in our own lives, sometimes that desire, sometimes that joy is missing. But this is the ideal future where no one is forcing us, no one is manipulating us, no one is calling us saying, where have you been? When are you going to come back? Instead, there is an internal desire to come into the presence of God. And while we recognize that to be an ideal of the future, there is nothing wrong with asking God to give us a glimpse of that, a portion of that now through his grace in our hearts. And by the way, the implication here is that this ought to be something that is part of our everyday lives. Yes, the ideal is in the future, but we ought to have part of it here. And so we ought to be asking God to give us that desire. We ought to be acknowledging sometimes that, Lord, we do not have that desire. And therefore, we want it and pray your spirit would give it and your grace would bring it about. That is not to say that you're going to spring out of bed every Sunday, but you might some Sundays. You might have that joy on some occasions, and so we ought to have some degree of this desire in the presence, though of course we know it is going to be tainted by sin. So not only will God be hungered, secondly, we see that God will be heard. The people and the nations are coming to hear what God has to say. Their desire is to hear his law. And by the way, when it says there that his law will come out of Zion, the implication is that this is the only place that it will come from. This idea that all gods are equal, that whatever path you want to choose is fine for you, but let me choose my own. This idea that is very prevalent in our day, that as long as you're sincere about a relationship with God, it really doesn't matter what you believe or who you follow. All of those statements are going to be proven false, and Isaiah rebukes them all by saying, it is out of Zion that God's law goes forth. Because he is the true God of the Bible who will be on his throne in Jerusalem, and this is the place then that everybody will come who wants to hear the word. Here again, this is the ideal because we recognize that even in our post-conversion state, we regularly fight against this. There are many times when we want to do our will rather than know and follow the law of God. In fact, that is true every time we willfully sin, which of course we recognize is on a regular basis. When you and I choose to sin, deliberately I'm talking about here, I'm not talking about sins that we're not aware of, I'm talking about when we, when we deliberately sin. We are in essence saying that my desire is more important than God's law. 
We are gladly proclaiming, or loudly proclaiming, I should say, that our ways are better than God's ways. And again, I realize that we don't think like that in terms of the temptation that is before us, but that is in essence what we are saying when we willfully and deliberately sin against God. Here again, while we realize this is a future ideal situation that will not be complete until Christ comes again, there is no reason why we cannot pray and ask God to give us moments like this in the presence. It is a biblical prayer to plead. God, help me to love your law. God, help me to know your law. Again, we appeal to the psalmist who says, Oh, how I love your law. It is my meditation all the day long. So while this is the ideal for the future, again, it can be the reality in the present to some degree, though obviously once again tainted by sin. But we need to be asking and trusting that God will, by his grace, make that happen to some degree in the present. And obviously, it's not going to happen without some effort on our part. And once again, no, this is not work salvation. It is reality. You can't expect to love the law of God or even plead for a love for the law of God if you are never taking the time or making the commitment to read God's word. I mean, that's sheer hypocrisy to be asking God that I might love his law when I'm not spending time reading it. So you and I ought to be committed to reading and studying the Bible. Whether it's the plan we've put out this year or some other plan of your own, the fact of the matter is we need to be systematically reading it. In fact, that's not a bad slogan if we can just steal from Nike for a moment. Just read it. I mean, that, whatever plan you want to do, just read it. That ought to be a part of our Christian life to consistently ingest the Word of God. And as we do that, God will grow in us a love for His law. And then we see thirdly in this section, the worship of God means that God will be honored. By that I mean that the law of God will not just be heard, but it will be honored through faithful obedience. As a parent, you are certainly not pleased when you tell your children to do something and they hear you, but they do not do it. Because you recognize that if they heard you and did not do it, they really didn't hear you at all. Even if they said they heard you, they didn't because it wasn't followed with faithful obedience. Likewise, the true test of hearing the law of God and loving the law of God is living in obedience to the law of God. This is what we see midway through verse 3 in the phrase that we may walk in his paths. That is the end of this progress, the purpose behind it all. We came in order to be taught, and we are taught in order to obey. So there is this dual responsibility here. Unless God teaches us how to walk, we can never walk in his path. But unless we come to God to be taught by God, he cannot teach us his law. And so there is this dual responsibility, making ourselves available to the word of God so that God can teach us for the end result that we might walk with him. And for the third time in this section, we know that this is the ideal because once again, we fight so hard against it. Even in our post-conversion state, we want to make the rules. We want to follow our own desires. 
Yes, we are spiritual enough to want God to sign off on them. That is why we tell God what we want and then ask him to bless it. Because we want his blessing on what we want to do. But that's not what Isaiah is talking about here. Like most children, obedience is simply not something that comes naturally. So here again, we need to ask God for the grace and the humility to desire obedience, knowing that it will not be perfect for now, but it can be at least partial. All right, so we move to our third point. This is found in verse 4. An ideal relationship rests in God. That's just my way of saying that God will bring peace during this future period. We see it in two ways. We see it in the fact that justice will be served. We talked about justice last week. The fact that Israel was unjust and they were oppressing. And therefore the call was for them as part of their relationship with God, flowing from their relationship with God, that they were to seek justice, especially for those who were oppressed. And I said last week that God is a God of justice. And in the latter days, this will become evident. He will settle disputes between nations and peoples, and we will know his decisions to be just. But again, that doesn't mean that we shouldn't be working toward that now. We are not just to sit back and say, well, wait till God shows up. You know, one of the recurring uh, phrases that I heard in my home growing up from my mom was this, just wait till your dad gets home. Now, for those of you who are from my generation or perhaps earlier, you know what that phrase means. It did not mean that I should be excited about dad coming home so that I could run to the door and eagerly greet him. It meant that when dad came home, I was going to face justice for whatever I had done during that day. Now, our job is not to just say to people, well, don't worry, one day God is going to bring justice. Yes, he will. But in the meantime, he has called on us to work for justice in this world until the time arrives when he sets everything right. We also see that this rest or peace is found in the fact that wars will cease. Here again, we know that this is the ideal future, not the current state, because there has scarcely been a time in human history. In fact, there has scarcely been a time in American history where there hasn't been some kind of war in some location. It seems that war is simply a part of the human predicament, but it won't be when the ideal environment arrives and the ideal relationship that God is bringing. In fact, the reason there are so many wars is due to a lack of relationship that people have with God. Peace will always be an illusion rather than a reality until God comes and we walk with him. Violence, as you know, is the norm these days. We painfully witnessed this again this past week. But there is coming a time when weapons of war will be useless. And the metals used for those weapons will be melted down and turned into fruit-bearing instruments, agricultural tools being more productive than military ones. But again, as we've been saying throughout, the promise of peace is part of the ideal relationship with God in the future. But that does not mean that we shouldn't pray for and long for peace in the present. Nor does it mean that we can't have personal peace with God and others until that time arrives. You and I may not be able to to prevent a war in the Middle East or a violent march in our own country, but we can have peace with God and we can have peace with one another as long as it depends upon us, of course, the Bible says. 
Now, I realize that the state of our society is very troubling for all of us, regardless of party affiliation. In years past, people have joked about leaving America and finding someplace else to live, but now it doesn't seem like much of a joke anymore. But understand that no matter where we live, it will never be the ideal, not now. It is clearly not the ideal in our country, but then again, it never has been. Human society have always and will always have their problems because they are made up of sinful human beings. But that reality doesn't destroy our personal peace with God for those who have been reconciled to God through Christ. And so the promise here is that one day, in the latter days, this will be the norm. Rather than just being a personal peace between you and God, or maybe at times peace between you and others, there is coming a time when peace will reign in the latter days. But until that time, we have the promise of peace with God through Jesus Christ, and we have the command to live at peace as far as it depends upon us with one another. So again, while we long for the perfect peace that is promised, we pray for and work for peace in the present. Which brings us to our last of our four points that is found in verse 5. An ideal relationship walks with God. Throughout this sermon, I've tried to be intentional in going back and forth from the future ideal to the present reality. I've tried to say repeatedly that while this is an ideal future, there are aspects of it that we ought to have in the present, not completely, but at least partially, and we ought to be praying and asking God for that. But when we come to this last point, this is to be our present walk. This last one is different because it is not something for which we await, but something we are commanded and expected in the present. In fact, there is a connection because of all of those other things we've talked about, because of that ideal future that is promised, therefore, we are to walk in the light of the Lord in the present. Well, let me ask it a different way. What is your incentive for living? I mean, what is it that drives you? What is it that gets you out of bed in the morning so that you face the day? Is it because you have bills to pay? So finances are driving you. That's the incentive for you to keep pushing on. Maybe it's your image. You keep moving on because you don't want to disappoint people in your life and you want them to think well of you. Perhaps it's your family. You want to provide and to protect them, and that's what, that's what motivates you to keep going. Well, what Isaiah is saying here, brothers and sisters, children of God, we have a glorious future in the presence of God. Therefore, walk in the light of the Lord today. He is striving to motivate us in our current lives by giving us this picture of this glorious future that is to come. Now, in a large measure of the rest of Isaiah, he's warning us of the threat of punishment if we don't shape up. But here he's saying, you have a great future in store for you, so live like it. There is going to be a return to Eden when the curse of sin has been done away with. When the people of God are completely right with God and we dwell in an ideal environment forever. So in light of that, live faithfully today. 
I've said this several times throughout the years, and yet I continue to marvel that it happens every single year. A college football star who we all know is good enough to not only make it in the NFL, but to be drafted high in the NFL. And therefore, he knows that in just a a year or three, he is going to be a millionaire many times over. So he knows that's his future. Why then can't he live his life in a straightforward manner for a few years just waiting on those millions of dollars? I mean, I honestly believe that not only could I avoid hitting my girlfriend for three years, I don't hit any women, but if I knew millions of dollars were going to come my way in a few years, I could not only avoid hitting her, I could avoid a girlfriend altogether for three years. I mean, I could go without that for three years if it meant millions of dollars. I could stay off drugs for a few years. I don't do drugs, but I'm confident I could stay off drugs for a few years if it meant that I could be a multimillionaire in just a few years down the road. And yet we see it every year. Young men who throw their futures away, even though financially there is a huge promise in front of them, they throw it away with poor decisions. Isaiah is saying something similar to us. There is an unbelievable future that awaits us, a future that will no longer just be the ideal, but it will be the reality. So until that time comes, live in the promise of that future. Or as Isaiah says in verse 5, come, let us walk in the light of the Lord. Let me pray. Father, we thank you that though we do not deserve it, you promise us such a grand and glorious future. Our minds cannot conceive of all that that's going to entail, but thank you for painting that picture for us. And I pray that until that day arrives, we would live in light of who we are and the future that you've promised us. May we walk in your light. We pray in Jesus' name, amen. Let's stand and sing and you respond.